pay attention. You're daydreaming again. Uh, me? No, 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 no. Okay, yes. But, you know, come on, lead bottom. Really? How hard is this? Fly straight, turn around, fly straight, turn well, around. Are you disrespecting the sweet science of aerial application? Look, I am more than just a crop duster. Don't go flap John about that flings around the planet air rates and nonsense again. Excuse me, it's called the Wings Around the Globe Rally. What a love of Peter And Bill. it's not nonsense. I, I've got a tight turn radius and a high power to weight oh, yeah. ratio. Oh, yeah. You know what else you got? What? A screw loose. I mean, why would you want to give up crop dusting? Blue skies. No air traffic and that tangy scent of fighter mini mulch. Mm, just like mama used to spray. Oh, uh, they say the sense of smell is the first thing to go. Oh, quitting time. Mm. <laughs> a crop duster wanting to be a racer. You ask me, more racers want to be crop duster. I got some mini mulch, Hey, good morning, Hope. Welcome. My name is Eli. I'm one of the ministers here at Hope Ankeny. And welcome, kids, in the room. This is one of our family worship weekends. We do this periodically because we think it's a really good idea for families to worship together whenever it's possible. So we're glad you're here in this room. And I was actually watching this with my kids a few weeks ago, this movie, Planes. Um, moms and dads, you'll understand it's part of the Cars universe in Disney, uh, all the vehicles are alive. You probably caught that, boats and trains and cars. Um, but this raises some questions for me. I have some questions. And as I was watching this, you know, my daughter, she's, she's almost nine. So she's getting old enough now where I feel like I can engage her in, you know, some philosophical conversations about the meaning of life and the existential dilemmas posed by Disney movies. And so, you know, we, our main character is Dusty Crop Hopper. It's an awesome name. And he is a crop duster. So I have questions. I leaned over to my daughter when this scene came on and I said, Hey, hey, June, who's the, who are the crops for? There's no people. Kids, maybe you know. I, no answer from her. So, you know, I moved on from that. A few scenes later, there was a passenger airliner, which is alive, but that had windows. So I leaned over again and I said, Hey, hey June, who's on that plane? Still no answer. Okay, fine, let that go. And then the plane flies by a high-rise apartment building in Manhattan, and some of the lights are on. And I said, June, who's in that building? And she finally said, Dad, be quiet. You're ruining the movie. Just sit back and enjoy it. You're ruining this for me. So I did. I, I let it go. I did enjoy the movie. Uh, Dusty Crophopper, as you saw, he has this, this dream of competing in an around-the-world race against other planes. And as you heard, and as his friends continue to remind himself over and over again, you're not built for that. that that's not for you. You're meant for other things. But he has this, this dream. He thinks that he might be meant for something more in this life. Our, our sermon series is finishing up today. This is the last week in a ser series we've been in since Easter called Can You Relate? And each week of this series, you can go back and watch on YouTube and listen on our podcast. They've been about different topics that most of us can relate to. And there are some weeks that I have definitely related to, some that I haven't. But this last one, I really wanted to make sure this was something that all of us could relate to. And, and these questions that come up in, in this, you know, great kids movie... Who am I and what am I really here for? Those are questions I think that all of us can relate to. These are universal questions that, that no matter what age or stage of life you might be in, I think all of us wonder at a certain point in time, who am I and, and what am I here for? In fact, think of the kids in the room. Uh, 
one of the first questions we ask children when they get a little bit old enough is, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a deeply unfair question to ask children, especially when us adults can barely answer it for ourselves. But that's what we ask because we're curious. In fact, there, there's probably a kid nearby you. Turn to one of them and just ask, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Find out what they say. Or turn to an adult. What did you say when you were a kid? Ask, what did you want to be when you grow up? I think the go-to for me when I was a young guy, I said I wanted to be a fireman. That was my go-to. I actually still want to be a fireman. So if you know how to hook me up, let me know. I'm in. But that's what I wanted to be. It's something that we are all curious about. Each one of us at a certain point wonders, what am I here for? Who am I really? And this isn't a new question. Humans have been asking this question for thousands of years. In fact, our Bible reading comes from Psalm 139. The King David is writing this this hymn, this song, asking and answering the same question. 3,000 years ago, who am I? What am I here for? And this is what he writes, starting in verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Let's read verse 14 out loud together. It's the part in bold. Read this with me. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This sounds beautiful and poetic, but what does it mean? What does that mean that we are fearfully made? We're going to get to that in a little bit, but this theme repeats itself throughout, especially the Old Testament. People in the Old Testament were, were, were uniquely interested in these questions. What did God put us here to do? All of us, not just me, but all of us. In fact, a few generations after David, the prophet Jeremiah, God calls him to to bring some really hard truths to the people of Israel. They've gotten off track. They've gotten themselves into a lot of trouble following the wrong decisions that they've made. And and so God calls Jeremiah, and this is what he tells him in in, in chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And then he would go on to describe how he had called Jeremiah to be a prophet, that this was his calling in life. And and for a lot of us, I think this can be a, a very comforting thought, that the God who made us knew us before he made anything, that each one of us he had a plan for, a purpose for, that he was the one who was going to knit us together uniquely and for a purpose. That before time began, it said he he knew the numbers of the hairs on our head, which for me was probably a pretty easy proposition. It's getting easier and easier all the time for him to keep track of me. And, And for many of us, that's a comforting thought. But I've talked to many other people for whom that is actually a a difficult idea. It raises some 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 tough questions. If God knows who we are before we're ever born, before he made anything, he knew you and he knew what your life was going to be, what you were, who you were, what you were built for, do I have any say in the matter? Does that mean that that I don't really get to make any decisions for my life? If if God knows what I'm going to do next, then then do I get to make any decisions? Do I get to make any plans? How how does this relationship work between the the omniscient God of the universe who who made everything, including me, knitting me together, and and what I get to do with, with my life? If I feel pulled in a certain direction, if I have a dream for my life the way that Dusty Crophopper has for him, do I get to change anything? If you remember last week, Pastor Scott, and you can listen back to it, um, talked about the Genesis account of creation. And remember how at a certain point, God actually creates time itself before he creates humanity. 
So there was, a, there was at some point during eternity, and this is where it gets really hard, where there wasn't a thing called time, but God still was, which means that, that time is as much a creature as we are. And God can no more be affected by time than he can be affected by us. So when we ask ourselves the question, if God knows what I'm going to do next, does that mean I've decided to do it? Well, God really doesn't have next in his vocabulary, just is. So it's actually a yes and to both. God does know you. And it doesn't say he's determined anything for your life. This is a a problem called theological determinism. Is my whole life just laid out and I don't have any say? No, it doesn't say that. It says that God knows you. God cares about you. And at the same time, God gives us the ability to choose the direction that we're going to take in our lives. One of the, the passages that has really helped me with this that I've memorized is from Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 9. It tells us this both and reality to our lives. It says, a heart of man plans his way and God directs his steps. It's a both and. A heart of man plans his way, and God directs his steps. In fact, the Hebrew for directs, yakin, it's, it's been used to also mean provides. That, that as we feel our heart pulled in a certain direction, thinking that that might be the way that God is calling me to go with my life. Even if other people tell me I shouldn't go that way, I feel like this is where God is leading me. The Bible tells us that God can and will direct, guide, provide our steps along the way. Now, now the problem becomes, for a lot of people, I think, that, that unless, until and unless we receive that, that message from God that says, this is the plan for your life, that we're not going to take any steps at all, Th- that I need to know what the whole plan is, and, and until then, I'm not going to move a muscle. I'm going to wait until God tells me exactly where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do with my life, without, without moving. And the problem with that is that it tells us that God is going to direct our steps. So as we start taking steps forward, that's when we actually get to feel God's direction for our life. It'd be like if you were sitting in the parking lot after church just turning your steering wheel but never putting some, putting some gas to your car. You know, our, our life means that we need to, to give it some gas every once in a while, to start taking steps in the direction that we feel God is calling us to go and, and trusting that he is going to guide us on that path. It doesn't mean it's going to be a straight path all the way to the end of wherever you feel like you're going in life. You know, there's going to be some twists and turns, and that's the part of God guiding, providing your steps, teaching us who we are and what we're here to do, all of us together. And I actually see this happening in in this movie. I see Dusty doing this, that he feels pulled in a certain direction that's different than what other people expect him to do. People keep telling him, using this phrase, you're not built for that, you're not built for that. You're meant for one thing and one thing only, and you can't really change. And finally, in one scene, after he's tired of hearing this over and over again, he finally lets people know why he really has this vision. Let's take a look. Hmm. Bad idea. You'll end up a smoking hole on the side of a mountain with your parts spread over five countries. What makes you say that? You're going up against the best racers in the world, and some of them don't even finish. Hey, what? You're sloppy on your rolls, wide on your turns, slow on your straightaways. You've been watching me? Yeah, watching you make a fool out of yourself. You need to be tighter getting in and out of your knife edge. Okay. Any extra control input costs you speed and seconds. So you think I'm overcorrecting? Absolutely. Rookie mistake. Are you giving me pointers? No, I'm telling you to forget all this race and malarkey. You just ain't built for it. You're a crop duster. You don't think I know that? 
You don't think I know that? I'm the one who's been flying back and forth across the same fields day after day, month after month, for years. I've flown thousands of miles, and I've never been anywhere. Not like you. You were built to fight, and look what you did. You're a hero. I'm just trying to prove that maybe, just maybe, I can do more than what I was built for. Now, I think that's certainly something that I can relate to. There, there have been seasons in my life where I felt like this, this place that God is calling me to go, where I feel my heart pulled and I start to take those steps, I, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. You know, there's too many twists and turns. The, the dream that I have for my life is not materializing the way that I thought it would. And, and that inevitably leads to frustration and continuing to, to swirl with these questions of, of who am I and why am I here? What am I here to do? Why did God put me on this earth at this time? Why did he knit me together in such an intricate way? And that's when what has been really helpful for me is to start asking different questions. Sometimes those whys and, and, and whos and what questions are, are, are a little bit harder. So, so I, I actually was in a, a theology class and a professor told our class one time, you know, the, the, the questions about who and why, those are questions that, that philosophers, theologians, that's what they answer. Questions about what we are and what is in the world, that's what, you know, conventional science, those are their questions. And for a long time, those two spheres seem to be pretty separate. But if God knit us together, if God formed us from the, the dust of the ground, God knows what we are. And maybe by focusing a little bit on, on what we are, what God put together, formed, that might help us understand a little bit better who we are and why we're here. So if we're going to ask questions about what we are, that means that today is a good day for a genetics lesson. Aren't you glad you came? Huge caveat, I should not be teaching this lesson. I don't know what I'm about to say. And I don't understand how most of it works. Are there any science teachers in the room? High school, anybody? I'm very sorry for what's about to happen. But it's fun. It, this has helped me a lot. Understanding the story of people discovering what we are has actually really helped me understand who I am and what we're here to do. So the, the story that I really love, in 1953, two scientists named Francis Crick and James Watson left their laboratory at King's College in Cambridge, England. And they, they had to tell somebody what they had just discovered. They ran down to the Eagle Pub in Cambridge, and they stood up in front of everyone, and they said, we have discovered it. We have, and this is the words they use, we have found the secret of life. You might wonder, well, were they philosophers or theologians? No, they were biologists. Francis and uh, uh, Crick and James Watson were biologists, and they were studying, leading the team that was studying what human DNA looked like and what it did, even the shape of it. Because until 1953, scientists didn't know what DNA was for. They knew that it was there as science kept getting smaller and narrower and they could peel back layers and see through cells and, and, and discover and, and make hypotheses about what's going on inside of our cells. They knew that something was in the nucleus. Some stuff was in there. They didn't know what it was for or what it did or what it looked like. In fact, there was one theory that I thought was kind of funny. There, there was a theory that it was just there. It didn't do anything. It was just kind of like our packing peanuts 
It was just in there to keep our cells from collapsing. That was one theory. And they weren't convinced. So they kept with their team, huge side story for another day. I love this story because there was a woman on their team named Rosalind Franklin. You can kind of see it in this cartoon. Uh, You know, uh, Crick and Watson get to hang out at the bar bragging about their discovery. Uh, Rosalind Franklin was was a great woman of science who has been forgotten um, because she was instrumental in this discovery. It wouldn't have happened without her and her research. And in fact, when, when Crick and Watson received their Nobel Prize for medicine because of this discovery, uh, Rosalind Franklin wasn't there. It's a story for another day, one that's fun to hear. But this is what they discovered, this, this shape that we all now know, this double helix of, of a strand of DNA, these curved parallel lines with intersecting perpendicular base pairs. That was really the core of what they found out, that this DNA wasn't just filler, This was actually the instructions telling our cells what to be. And as scientists have continued to uncover this, the the parallel they use is like a computer code. The ones and zeros of our cells telling them that you are a human cell, not some other organism. And the repeatable pattern of these base pairs that always link together, that's what they found was telling our cells what we are. And the, 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 the amazing thing about this discovery that they were so surprised by was how beautiful it looked. They, they, they could not believe the shape that they were seeing in the nucleus of every cell. The, the, this twisted ladder, almost symmetrical in nature and paradoxical, they said it was so beautiful. That's what they were awe-inspired by. In fact, at the 50th anniversary of this discovery, so in 2003, James Watson gave a, an interview to the BBC and he said, when we saw the answer, we had to pinch ourselves Could it really be this pretty? We realized it was probably true because it was so pretty, that there was so much beauty in the core of every cell of our bodies, it had to be true. They were awestruck by this discovery. And this led to a new field of genetic research because these base pairs, medical doctors began to realize that if they were out of alignment or if they had the wrong pattern, the wrong code, that could lead to different kinds of diseases that they could then catch early, track, even start to treat better. And one of those doctors in the 70s was a doctor named Francis Collins, who was a pioneer of genetic research, and then he would actually lead the team that would decode the entire human genome. So so Crick and Watson, they discovered the shape of it, what it looked like, what it was for, what it did, but they didn't know the whole code. And it took this team that Francis Collins led years, decades, to finally decode the entire line of, of, human ge- of the human genome. It was an amazing, groundbreaking discovery. They now knew what our language was in our cells. And so when Francis Collins was going to, to give this press conference, he, he and Bill Clinton were at the White House in, in the year 2000. They were announcing this to the world, this, this discovery. Francis Collins said, I want to call this the language of God in this press conference. And he wrote a book all about that. The reason he wanted to call it that, because on top of being a medical doctor and a genetic researcher, an amazing scientist, he is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Francis Collins is a devout Christian, in large part because of what he saw in our genetics. When he himself looked at this amazing, beautiful structure DNA in the nucleus of every cell of the human body, he realized that that couldn't have been an accident, that somebody knit that together, that it was, it was fearfully and wonderfully made, so pretty it has to be true. 
And that's what led him to developing a faith in Jesus Christ because of his scientific research. That the more he discovered what we were, he was able to understand better who we were. And that's, I think, what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully made. That, that Hebrew word, it's, it's really complex. So naraot is the word in, in Hebrews or in um, uh, Psalm 139 that's fearfully made. And the way Hebrew works is it takes a base, a root word, and then it adds prefixes and suffixes to it to give action or, or emphasis or, or um, tense and things like that. It adds to the word. And the base word for naraot is na'a, which is, it just means beautiful on its own. But all the stuff that gets added to this word in Psalm 139 is like adding emphasis, building on that word. It's, it's this poetic way of trying to describe that it is so, so, so beautiful. In fact, it's so beautiful that it's scary how intricately you are put together by the creator of the universe. That, that even unseen parts of our body were knit together with precision and delicacy. That's what it's saying. Basically, the Bible is saying that you are awesome. In fact, turn to somebody next to you and say, the Bible says you are awesome. <laughs> it's literally what it says. That when, when we finally get to see what's at the core of every human cell, it's so awe-inspiring that it is scary fearfully and wonderfully made, each and every one of us. Now, like I said, I don't really understand any of what I just told you. I, I don't get how, how these base pairs tell ourselves what to be. That is way too over my head. I'm grateful for very smart people who understand how that works and why it works. What I do get, though, what I understand are some of the conclusions that, that Francis Collins and other scientists have arrived at by doing this research. Because, again, to map the entire human genome, they had to take samples from all over the world and compare them and put them together. It took decades. And he writes in his book, The Language of God, this is what he discovered. Another striking feature of the human genome comes from the comparison of different members of our own species. At the DNA level, we are all 99.9% identical. And that similarity applies regardless of which two individuals from around the world you choose to compare. Thus, by DNA analysis, we humans are truly part of one family. We are all 99.9% identical at the core of who we are, part of one human family. And over the last two weeks, 32 of our family members have been brutally murdered, taken away from our family by 18-year-olds with assault rifles. That we have lost those parts of our human family. And the reason why this affects all of us so deeply, why there is such deep-felt emotion, anger, pain, heartache, frustration, confusion, the reason why it affects all of us, even though we may not know anybody individually who were affected by the tragedies in Uvalde and in Buffalo, or the 15 other mass shootings that happened between those two events in the United States, the reason it affects all of us is because the same DNA that is in your cells is in theirs. That they are part of our family that the, the, the 19 children who died 
are our children. We belong to each other. And we are not different. After the shooting in Buffalo happened, I went online to read the the 80 plus pages that the, the shooter posted about why he was doing what he was doing. I don't recommend doing that at all. But I wanted to know what his motivations were for specifically going into a black neighborhood in Buffalo and targeting a a grocery store where he knew predominantly there would be African Americans there. And what he wrote in 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 this evil racist manifesto was that this ethnicity was so genetically different from his white race that they were a threat to his race and that they needed to be dealt with. Because they were so ethnically, genetically different. Because this boy did not know what we are, that we are 99.9% identical, part of one human family, he felt threatened by that. Because he didn't know that we are the same, he didn't know who we are. That we are part of one human family. And that you are the same as the person sitting next to you and the person on the other side of the globe... At the genetic level, 99.9% identical. And where this evil comes from is a misunderstanding of what God has knit together at the core of every cell of our body. That that every single human being has been knit together intricately, beautifully, fearfully, and wonderfully made. And that we are all connected and tied to one another. And when we forget that, that's where this evil comes from. When we forget that there is infinitely more that unites us than divides us. And in fact, science has now caught up to what we have known for 2,000 years when the Apostle Paul wrote this in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And you can insert whatever duality you feel like might be appropriate for our present circumstance here in, in 2022. Whatever either-or proposition that has come up as people have tried to angrily assign blame or figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to get back and and, and avenge and and all of these awful, hateful words that are coming from a dualistic way of thinking, thinking that I am different from you. No, we are one in Jesus Christ. There is no division between us. And we finally know that that's actually medically, scientifically true. That we are the same. And we belong to one human family. And we have to know what it is that God has put together for us to appreciate that, to know who we are. In fact, Francis Collins even continues in his book, All the atoms in our bodies were once cooked in the nuclear furnace of an ancient supernova. You are truly made of stardust. That the way that God put us together comes from all of the material that he made. That that, that as we are bound up together, what I see in Genesis, and you can go back and listen to Scott's message, he talked about this last week, the way that God forms us from the dust of the earth. He says, I formed man, Adam, the Hebrew word for humanity. Not making individuals who are going to run around looking for their own selfish interests, looking out for number one and what's best for me. No, God created a human race. 
a race of humanity, one human family, and all of us members get to make up part of that. And the one-tenth of one percent difference means that the mosaic masterpiece that God has made that is, that is beautiful in its collectivity, we all get to play a unique part of that. But when some people forget that we are all part of this one masterpiece and they decide that, that a particular type, the one-tenth of one percent difference, that they don't belong as a part of the artwork and they start randomly flicking off pieces of that mosaic masterpiece that God has created, what does that do to our image? What is that, how does that degrade this beautiful image of humanity that God has made? We lose parts of ourselves when this happens. Our brothers and sisters, when we use that phrase in church that we are brothers and sisters, that is not some, some cute language. That is truth. That is the reality of who we are. And we learn that by remembering what we are. That God has made us the same, part of the same family. So what do we do next? What are our next steps? If you feel, again, your heart pulled in a certain direction about this, and you want to respond, and that's what I keep hearing. What do we do next? What do we do? What are our next steps? God has actually been pretty clear about that in Scripture. What the church ought to be doing when it's confronted with evil in the world. And again, last week we talked about Romans chapter 12, but it's a long passage, and I kind of wanted to pick up where we left off last week. Romans chapter 12 is the steps are the steps that God has provided for us. If we're making plans, these are the steps that God has provided. And so I want to just remind us what Romans chapter 12 says. The highlights are on the screen, but this is what it says. I'll read it slowly, starting in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We were meant to live for more than this. Church, we were meant to live for more than what we see in the world around us. The, the, the song that the worship team played for us before this message, the bridge of that song says, we want more than the world has to offer. The, the world has, uh, has hatred to offer, has revenge to offer, has blame to offer, and that's all. We want more than that. And that, that the last line says that everything inside of us screams for second life. Our own cells cry out to be alive, to live again. And so our next steps certainly isn't more violence, certainly isn't more hatred, certainly isn't more division. The steps are service. If our enemy is hungry, feed him. If our enemy is thirst, not our neighbor, not our friend, not someone we like, If your enemy is hungry, serve them, feed them. Those are the steps the church is expected to take. If we follow Jesus and we take his example seriously, we are called to serve our family together. Because that is really how we find life, how we bring life in the midst of so much death. 
There, there are certain words in the English language that are uh, called palindromes. A palindrome is just a, uh, the word that's it's spelled the same forwards and backwards, like mom and dad. There are other words in the English language called anadromes. And an anadrome is a word that when you spell it backwards, it makes a whole new word. I think it's important telling that the, the anadrome for evil is live. That when we decide as a people that we are not going to repay evil for evil, but instead we are going to flip that equation upside down, we are not going to live in the same pattern that the world lives, looking to repay with more violence, with more hatred, with more division, with revenge. When we decide we are not going to choose evil, but instead we are going to choose service and love and forgiveness to find a way to help those who are hurting, that, I think, is when we can find life in the midst of all of this. And when we can bring life where it needs to be found. So when uh, Dusty Crophopper makes it to the starting line of this race around the world, he's qualified, he's in. He meets all of the other racers and almost all of them ridicule him the same way. You're not built for this. You're not meant for this. Go home. You're only, you're only meant for one thing in this life, and it isn't this. He actually has a particularly nasty encounter with a, a British airplane. Again, I have questions. <laughs> British airplane named Bulldog, uh, voiced by John Cleese. And, and Bulldog humiliates him, bullies him. I mean, makes him feel less than nothing. But in the race, when Bulldog, his enemy, gets into trouble... Instead of repaying evil for evil, watch what happens. Mayday! 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 I'm blinded! I can't see! We're receiving breaking news of an incident in the skies over Germany involving one of the racers. Let's check in with Skycam 1 for more information. Bulldog, a legendary flyer from the UK, is in tremendous danger. It looks like he's flying blind, losing speed, losing altitude. Wait, it's racer number seven, Crabhopper, pulling up beside him. What's he doing? Bulldog, apply your left aileron. Okay. Stop, roll. Now quick, pull up. Got it. Harder, harder. Side roll right. Good. Whoa! Big castle! Pull off! Hard roll right! Stop roll! Oh, are you still there? I'm right here. I'll fly right alongside you. Achtung! We have a mayday. Clear the runway. Achtung! Clear the runway. Add power. Okay. Easy now. Yes. Good. Flaps down. Lock them. Careful. Landing gear down. Get up and locked. Begin your flare. Power back a little. Touchdown! <laughs> Nicely done! Thanks for your help, matey! Oh, I couldn't have done it without... You? You saved me? What did I tell you, boy? Every plane for himself, right? Where I come from, if you see someone falling from the sky... Yes, but this is a competition! And now you're dead last! And I owe you my life. Are you crying? I don't cry, I'm British. Thanks, baby. Sure thing, Bulldog. Dusty puts himself dead last so that he can serve his enemy. That sounds an awful lot like something that Jesus told us to do. 
Let's remind ourselves of, of what Jesus tells us in Mark 9.35. Read this together with me out loud. It'll be up on the screen. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And that's, that's who we are, church, servants of all. And we remember that, who we are, by reminding ourselves what we are, that each and every person that we meet has been knit together beautifully, fearfully, and wonderfully made in the image of God. And that there's so much more that unites us than divides us. So the worship team is going to lead us in one more song. I invite you to stand as we sing together and we are reminded as a family who God says we are. <laughs>